Welcome to Plotcast, episode 34, is it? All right, welcome. Well, whatever it is, 34, I think it's 34. Welcome. I want to talk, talk uh, this time about some gun control basics. Some gun control basics. The... Um, I think that we could see, as I'm speaking here, we're in the, uh, we're just a few weeks after the Florida school shooting, and these things happen periodically, and there's a great uh, hue and cry, and the uh, after each one, and much of the shouting, much of the um, uh, cultural turmoil that follows a, a horrific episode like this, is profoundly. Uh, misleading if you get caught up in it, and profoundly revealing if you pay close attention to what's actually going on. So in the Parkland shooting, in the Florida shooting, you had shown to to us in high relief the failure of government at virtually every level. So you had a sheriff uh, who refused to go in uh, during the, while the shooting was still in progress, you had um, multiple warnings to the authorities before the shooting uh, that could have been that could have headed off the shooting had they been acted on. You had the FBI informed. You had the FBI not following protocols. So from the federal level down to the local county level, you had one failure after another on the part of government. So. Um, government collapsed. Government uh, did a face plant. Government didn't do what they were supposed to do. They didn't follow their established protocols and so on. And yet, in the aftermath of the shooting, people instinctive, whenever something really bad happens, when there's, when there's some um, uh, calamity of some sort, people will instinctively, naturally, readily cry out to their gods. And, and they will do this even, even though their gods have failed. So in this case, uh, you have people crying out to their gods. And they, they uh, raise a cry against those that they, they believe are resisting the gods, are, are standing against the gods. And in this case, because the god is government, because the god is the state, it doesn't matter that the government failed, 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 top to bottom in this whole thing. Uh, everybody cries out for gun control legislation. Now, that word legislation tells you what, who you're crying out to. Who, who are you? If you're crying out for legislation, you're crying out to the legislature. You, you are asking the government to save you. The, the same government that uh, failed in multiple ways to, to prevent this problem or to behave appropriately once the problem was in progress. So you have people crying out to their gods, the god that failed. And on top of that, so you have um, multiple failures and the one entity that gets blamed in the aftermath of this is the National Rifle Association, which manifestly had absolutely nothing to do with the shooting or with the failures that allowed for the shooting. So you need a scapegoat. If you're not going to deal with the actual culprit, you need a scapegoat. And so the NRA was scapegoated. So this reveals 
the God of the system. This, uh, when, when a calamity happens, people cry out to their gods. And this is a religious faith commitment. It is not, in this instance, evidence-based. People turn to their gods, and it's a, re- it's a religious reflex. Now, when the Second Amendment was adopted, when uh, the Bill of Rights was adopted, the, the, so the Constitution was presented, and a number of people said, "Hey, uh, there were the, there were two parties at the at the time, two factions, arguing over whether the Constitution should be adopted." The Federalists said that yes, it should be. They were proposing the Constitution be adopted, and they said it's great; it'll be totally great. Uh, the Anti-Federalists were opposed to it. Um, Um, Madison would be an example of a Federalist, and Patrick Henry would be an example of an Anti-Federalist. Patrick Henry saying of the Constitutional Convention that he smelled a rat. So you had this big debate between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists. The Anti-Federalists made a lot of strong points, so strong that the Federalists compromised in order to get the Constitution adopted, they compromised by attaching a, uh, uh, you know, a series of writers, uh, amendments, uh, that we now know as the Bill of Rights. So the, the Bill of Rights were concessions to the anti-federalist position, making certain things explicit. It wasn't that the Federalists said, uh, we don't want uh, free speech, and the anti-federalists said we do. Um, the debate was more like what would be the best way to protect free speech if you, uh, if you say that we are going to recognize free speech or freedom of religion in the Bill of Rights. Uh, the Federalists said, will not that make people think that the federal government is the giver of these things? And the anti-Federalists said, no, we need to have it explicitly marked, uh, explicitly stated that uh, the people retain these rights, etc., uh, and they they everybody agreed that the federal government did not give, for example, the right to keep and bear arms, as is laid out in the Second Amendment. Now, whether you're a Federalist or an Anti-Federalist, the fact that the Constitution, as revised, as amended by the Bill of Rights, passed and became the supreme um, law of the land, you have to. St- take a few steps back and look at it carefully. Now, this what I'm about to say applies to the entire Constitution, but it, I, I, want to, I want us to focus on the Second Amendment, the, uh, uh, the amendment that says the, key, the right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. If you look at the Constitution as adopted and passed by this compromise uh, between Federalists and Anti-Federalists, the central thing that you should see is that the, the, one of the central principles undergirding American jurisprudence is this principle, never trust an American politician. That's the assumption that the, the whole um, uh, apparatus is based on. And um, the Second Amendment was put there because they wanted to protect the right of the people to gather in militias so that there would be some sort of resistance to tyranny that was, that was established at the federal level. So the, the right to keep and bear arms was not about deer hunting. 
it was not about it, it was not about uh, weekend sharpshooting entertainment. It was a it, it was uh, adopted with the intent that the people would be armed so that they could fight encroachments of tyranny that would be manifested according to the fears of the founders that would be manifested in um, in the uh, in government agents it would be manifested either in this branch of government or that branch of government so the whole system of checks and balances the separation of powers the the, the idea of enumerated powers in the constitution where the federal government has the powers that are expressly delegated to it, and as um, as the Bill of Rights says, that if if it's not expressly delegated to the federal government, then those rights are retained by the states or by the people. The, you you can't work through the constitu- constitution without realizing that the founders were extremely jealous of uh, apportioning out power and authority. And so they they did not want uh, they, they did not want the, the people to trust their government. And yet here we are in the aftermath of the school shooting where where liberals, progressives are crying out to their gods. They're dancing around the altar cutting cutting themselves with knives and and saying we have to take the people's guns away. We have to take the people's guns away. Um, and this is just um, frankly, nonsensical. Um, I mean, think about it for a minute. As I saw float by in, uh, in my Twitter feed somewhere, saw float by one uh, in some place, someone said this, and I think it puts, I think it touches the thing nicely. And that is, the, it is a, a fundamental faith tenant with many people on the left that Trump is literally Hitler. Trump is literally Hitler. That's point one. Point two, we should surrender all our guns to him. Now think about this. I mean, just for a minute, think. So here in episode 34 of the podcast, I want to uh, uh, briefly review a book and commend a book to you. Um, This book is uh, entitled The Idea of Decline in Western History. The Idea of Decline in Western History. History. Uh, it was written by a gent named Arthur Herman, who is a fine writer. He also wrote another book that I might commend to you sometime: uh, "How the How the Scots Invented the Modern World." That's a great book, also. But I'm not going to I'm not going to get distracted and chase off after it. Arthur Herman addresses in this book the idea of decline in Western history, how how it came about that people just quietly assume that things are falling apart. How, how do you get the idea that, um, that things naturally just come apart, that the old days were better than now? Um, back, in, back in the old days, things were great. And this can either be uh, with where you've zoomed in on the, on the, on the time map closely. So you're saying, oh, the Eisenhower, Eisenhower years were great and everything fell apart in the 60s and now it's all, you know, we're bouncing along in this handbasket. So that, there's, that you, that's, there's the zoom in feature. Or you could back out and say, oh, uh, centuries ago or millennia ago, there was this paradise, etc. So um, 
Herman is interested in where this idea uh, comes from. Where, where does the idea come from that things are falling apart? Um, now, you would, you would think, for example, that the doctrine of evolution would, would say the opposite. Everything is uh, slowly developing or progressing upward. But evolutionists, and this is something that Herman touches on, evolutionists have to worry about uh, uh, throwbacks, you know, where, where you've got all that, uh, all that genetic inf information from, from the old days uh, may still be there, and we might revert back to the, uh, the old ways. So is evolution a naturally, you know, a, a doctrine that says that we're going to gradually progress upward? Well, no, not necessarily, because strictly speaking, evolution is just about change, not about progress. And the change has to do, according to natural selection, the change changing has to do with whether or not um, you can survive. Do you, will your genes survive? So if after the nuclear war, the planet is inhabited by three-foot cockroaches, that's not a negative as far as a strict materialistic evolutionist is concerned because the genes, they're cockroach genes, cockroach genes, but they're still being passed on, right? So um, Herman digs into the idea of how this, where this idea comes from. Why, why do people just reflexively assume that things are going downhill? Um, and that, and someone might say, well, it's because entropy, we see things in the physical world falling apart. If you don't tend them, uh, they fall apart. Yes, but what if you do tend them? Why do, why do, they st why do you still have this um, gut assumption that whatever you do, it's, going to, it's all going to come to nothing? Um, Herman shows that this idea of inexorable decline is an intellectual idea that has a history, and people pass it on, and many people pick it up without knowing that they've picked it up or from whom they've picked it up. Now, I'm, uh, I'm speaking, this is not a book about eschatology or strictly speaking about Christian theology. Every Christian knows that, that we were created uh, and established in the Garden of Eden and there was a fall. That's a downward, that's a downward motion, creation and fall. But we also have the promise of the Messiah. And when the Messiah comes, you have the growth of the kingdom promised, and then we divide up into eschatological camps. Um, I'm a postmillennialist, which means that I believe that the gospel is going to triumph in the world. Uh, the gospel is going to be victorious. But that doctrine, that eschatological doctrine, that's, that particular theology, oftentimes collides with this secular assumption of things deteriorating. And um, if you're, if you're reading, if you're studying, or if you're interested in eschatology at all, and if you've studied postmillennialism simply on the exegetical grounds or the theological grounds, the, those who would argue from it, um, from Scripture, it might be good to get this book, The Idea of Decline in Western History, and read it as a companion volume to your study of eschatology. Just, it's just very fine work. So, homartiology is our, uh, our attempt to work through all the different words in the New Testament, all the different Greek words in the New Testament for various sins or uh, states of mind that are sinful or, you know, sinful verbs, sinful nouns, etc.
So the, the word in the New Testament, the word meaning excess or lack of control, is akrasia, akrasia. It is used two times in the New Testament, once for a husband and wife who are sexually fasting and who are therefore tempted because of their incontinency. That's in 1 Corinthians 7.5. They're tempted because of their incontinency, akrasia. The second use is when Jesus lambasted the Pharisees because they cleaned the outside of the cup and platter, but inside were full of extortion and excess, uh, acrasia and excess, um, Matthew twenty three twenty five. So one of the reasons that non-believers, even non-believers in positions of influence and importance, cannot control themselves is that self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. They might be able to control one thing, but when they control that one thing, it's like that child's uh, toy where you push one thing down and the other one pops up. Uh, a man can control himself when it comes to drugs, but not, according, uh, when, not when it comes to women. Or he can control himself when it comes to women, but not when it comes to power. Or he can tr- control himself with regard to power, but not when it comes to money. And, and so on. So you have uh, a crazia is... This lack of continency, this lack, this lack of um, self-control, and the spirit when he comes into our lives, when he when he's working in our lives, uh, together with the other fruit of the spirit, what he's doing is he's in um, instituting or insinuating into our lives the ability to be self-controlled across the board. It's not just simply one area or another. God in the time of the sickness, God in the dark. You've spent a pleasant half hour with podcast proprietor Douglas Wilson. This podcast is produced by Canon Press. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platform. To hear more from Doug, please visit canonpress.com.